everything in life is either important or urgent. The question is, how do you define what is important? There are six and a half billion people on Earth. Only four call me daddy. I'm the only person on the planet that can be the husband of my wife. So therefore, the important things are, are things that only I can do. I think we have men and women in leadership in the boardrooms of America who are put there by Almighty God but have not assumed their assignment. So go where the needs are. Go where the needs are greatest. Go where the world is bleeding out of control. That's, that's where God wants you to work. How was the Word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the Word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's Word and apply it to your life. In Context. Welcome back to Michael Easley in Context. We are in episode seven of the leadership process. And today, Michael will be teaching from Nehemiah chapter six. And we will be having conversations with folks like Johnny Erickson Tata, Dennis Rainey, and Bob McEwen about different pieces of the leadership process, such as keeping the main thing the main thing, how we do that in our jobs, families, and even on a spiritual level about sensing God's hand at work in your life. And again, facing opposition, Nehemiah continues to face opposition over and over and over throughout this story, but really addressing the question, is there ever a time to run? So let's go ahead and join Michael as he teaches from Nehemiah chapter six. One of my favorite books is Talk Through the Bible, written by Ken Boa and Bruce Wilkinson. It's an interesting text because in one volume, they cover each book of the Bible in several pages. In the chapter dealing with Nehemiah, they begin, Nehemiah, contemporary of Ezra and cupbearer to the king in the Persian palace, leads the third and last return to Jerusalem after the Babylonian exile. His concern for the welfare of Jerusalem and its inhabitants prompts him to take bold action. Granted permission to return to his homeland, Nehemiah challenges his countrymen to arise and rebuild the shattered walls of Jerusalem. In spite of opposition from without and abuse from within, the task is completed in only 52 days, a feat which even his enemies must attribute to God's enabling. By contrast, the task of reviving and reforming the people of God within those rebuilt walls demands years of Nehemiah's godly life and leadership. We're thinking in this series about the leadership process. We've mentioned many times there are scores of books on Nehemiah and on leadership. In this study, we're trying to look at the book of Nehemiah in its context and not only glean leadership principles, but look at what the story was about, what God was doing in this man's life called Nehemiah to rebuild the walls and reform the people of God. Nehemiah chapter 6, we all like beginnings. We all like to start things. At least, I think most of us do. 
I like starting a project. I like doing the research and studying it, surfing around the web, looking online, talking to people, asking questions. Beginning a plan can be an exciting thing. Even the early stages of a plan can be exciting. But when the work gets tough, when it becomes mundane, or when we face opposition, that's when the real work begins. Nehemiah is on the brink of completing the wall. As he comes to this closure, it's the enemy's last hope for an open door or an open gate, we might say. In chapter 6, verse 1 of Nehemiah, Now when it was reported to Sanballat, Tobiah, to Geshem the Arab, and to the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall, and that no breach remained in it, although at that time I had not set up the doors in the gates, then Sanballat and Geshem sent a message to me, saying, Come, let us meet together at Kephrim in the plain of Ono. But they were planning to do me harm. The opposition Nehemiah is going to face in chapter 6 are going to involve deception, disunity, death threats, disinformation, and even discrediting him as a leader. So as we begin the chapter, keep these things in mind. We're going to face deception, disinformation, discouragement, all kinds of things in any project, even a mundane project, but critical for the leadership process, understanding how we lead in our sphere of influence when these things come across and when they can be very demoralizing. Now, one of the caveats we learn in chapter 6, verse 1, the wall is at a height now where they're protected from enemies. There's no breach remaining, no area where it was crumbled down. But Nehemiah tells us, I had not set up the doors in the gates. So essentially, all the open passages are their last vulnerable entry points. And Sanballat and company know this. Nehemiah is going to stay to his mission. As we read in verse 3, I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? It's a great clarifying principle that a leader knows his mission. A leader knows this is the one thing I must do. And he's determined not to be distracted as close as they are to sealing off this wall and protecting themselves and enabling worship. They can't stop now. Now, let's think about it from Sanballat and company and their strategy. They can't destroy him. Let's discredit him. If they can't literally get in and plot to kill him, let's get him outside of his protected wall, and there we might be able to kill him. Well, the chapter breaks into several threats. There are five specific threats that come from Sanballat and company. And to summarize those, let me finish verse 4. They sent messages to me four times in this manner. And I answered them in the same way. Then Sanballat sent his servant to me in the same manner a fifth time with an open letter in his hand. And the implication here is now it's public. The other letters were probably carried by courier. Now he's coming out and perhaps reading it aloud. Verse 6, in it it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Gashum says, that you and the Jews are planning to rebel. Therefore you are rebuilding the wall. And you are their king, according to these reports. You've also appointed prophets to proclaim in Jerusalem concerning you, a king in Judah. And now, 
it will be reported to the king according to these reports. So come now, let us take counsel together. This whole section is subterfuge and deception on the part of his enemies. It's a lot like politics. First, let's have a peace accord. Let's come down and have a conversation. But Nehemiah smells the rat. Ono is about 25 miles approximately northwest of Jerusalem. Importantly, it's just on the edge. In other words, a little too far from Jerusalem, so therefore in hostile territory. Besides that, he'd waste time traveling there to meet with these so-called allies who want to befriend him. Nehemiah trusted his nose, and he sent messengers. Let's verify what they want to talk about. Is this a peace accord, or is it subterfuge? And, of course, the message comes four times, four times the same reply, until the fifth adamant reply becomes public. Again, a sidebar here for you and me. A leader has to discern the who, what, where, and when of his time. Only you as an individual, only I as a leader can make those choices. Other people can guide us and counsel us and give us helpful information. But at the end of the day, part of a leader is being able to say, I don't need to do that, or I do need to do that. When I served a church in Northern Virginia, I had an extraordinary assistant for many years. She was wise, she was prudent, she knew people very well, and she tried to handle most things so they never got to my desk. So on the occasion when she came and said to me, Michael, this is a situation you need to address, there was never any discussion. I didn't have to ask 15 questions about why did it come to my desk. I knew that she had done extraordinary diligence, and I knew that if Sharon asked me to do something, I better do it. We're not always privileged to have those kind of people around us, but even at that, you as leader have to discern the who, the what, the where, the when of your time. And Nehemiah smelled the situation and knew, I'm not going to go do that. Again, thinking along your own situation, is there someone better equipped or better skilled to do this? Is there someone who can help you where you don't need to step into this? Early in ministry years, I was doing a lot of counseling for about eight years. And I got to the point where I realized, I'm not very good at this. This isn't my gift. I'm probably frustrating people more than I'm helping, and I might be harming them. So I needed to find someone better equipped, more skilled to help. Secondly, when it comes to discerning the who, what, where, and when of your time, is the person, is the issue, is the task more important than fill in the blank? Sometimes we think about the immediate and the crisis, the crucial, the important, and there's no surefire way to know that. But a good question to ask, is this issue more important than what I'm currently working on? And Third, is this just a perennial weed? Is this a chronic complainer? Um, you will always have people in your life that will always see the underbelly, the problem side of it. No matter how hard you work, they will always complain. Dr. John had a wry saying, if you handed everyone you met a $100 bill, some will be mad about the way you handed it to them. And we're going to deal as leaders with people who are going to always be unhappy, always see the negative, always complaining. A leader has to know the who, what, where, when, and how to use your time. Go back to what the needs are. Go back to who you are. Go back to what you were hired for. Go back to what you're trying to lead. 
And these subtle distractions can become major distractions very quickly. Well, in verses 5 to 9, it becomes a slanderous distraction. It's been subtle, but now they're going to slander him. They're going to accuse him of trying to make himself king, of establishing prophets. These accusations are subterfuge. They're deception. They're accusing Nehemiah. You're making yourself a king. You're appointing prophets. You're doing things that you're not supposed to do. And this open and unsealed letter spreads that rumor and spreads that message. And that's just enough subterfuge to cause people to wonder, what is Nehemiah really up to? In verse 6, you are planning to rebel. He's trying to goad Nehemiah out of fear, out of slander, out of provocation to say, you're doing something that only a king can do. That would be the icing on the cake. Get him out of town so he's going to come fight the accusation. In the ancient Near Eastern attitude, a prophet was the one that not only proclaimed God's truth, but he could also unleash God's power. So the icing on the religious cake is, you're making yourself a king, and you're appointing people that are going to proclaim God's word and unleash God's power. Well, Nehemiah's response in verses 8 and 9 are important to review. Then I sent a message, such things you are saying have not been done, but you're inventing them in your own mind. For all of them were trying to frighten us, thinking they will become discouraged with the work, and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Nehemiah's response in verses 8 and 9, it's a clear denial of the accusations, and more importantly, a clear communication to his own people who might wonder, is that what Nehemiah might be up to? Well, it becomes seditious in verses 10 and following. When I entered the house of Shemaiah, the son of Delilah, the son of Mathebel, who was confined to the home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you and they are coming to kill you at night. Should a man like me flee? And could one such as I go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Then I perceived that surely God had not sent him, and he uttered his prophecy against me, because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He was hired for this reason, that I might become frightened and act accordingly and sin, so they might have an evil report in order that they could reproach me. The sedition is strong. It's a distraction. They're calling him a false prophet. Uh, Shemaiah may well have thought this would be the tipping point. Uh, he wants him confined to his home. And again, that would raise the suspicion. If he goes into the house of God in the temple, uh, this would be a defilement. He could not go up into the temple complex in that way, much less hide there. Uh, Nehemiah wasn't a priest. And if he did... And he lived to tell about it, he would have disregarded God's command. It would have undermined his integrity down to the core. It also seems to tell us that Nehemiah knows how near he is to his God-given mission. Why would God want me to quit now? He remembers, and this time it's imprecation against those who commit treason. Derek Kidner writes, The right decision had been swiftly made on principles that were stronger than the apparent situation or the fear of death. Listen again. The right decision had been swiftly made on principles that were stronger 
than the apparent situation or the fear of death. It's a great reminder for all of us, whether we're leaders or just folks making decisions on a daily basis. Are we making it on principles that are more important than what is in front of us sometimes? That goes back again to our integrity as well as our trust in God. Well, Nehemiah is going to pray an imprecation. God, will you deal with my enemies? Verse 14. Remember, O my God, Tobiah and Sanballat, according to these works of theirs, and also Noadijah, the prophetess, and the rest of the prophets who were trying to frighten me. It's a good reminder, again, small prayer, big statement. Nehemiah is asking God, deal with this. This is a major distraction. These are five invitations that have tried to get him off task and off message. The fifth one being public. The sedition, the deception, the lies, the accusations. Then finally, the final twist of the knife, go hide in the temple complex because they're coming to kill you. And Nehemiah gets it. And it gets to the point where he knows he can't remedy or address all his enemies' accusations, but he can appeal to God, God, you remember them, and you remember me, and what they were trying to do to frighten your people. A couple of sidebar lessons as we go through chapter 6. Number one, do you know your mission objective? I love in chapter 6, verse 3, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. It's a great defining statement. I don't have time for this. This is not my problem. A good godly leader knows what he or she is doing. And to say it another way, if you're doing God's work, you can have a God confidence in what you're doing. I find it sad how many people are greatly unfulfilled and very unsatisfied with their jobs and their careers. When we lived in the Washington, D.C., Northern Virginia area, I had a dear friend that worked for the federal government. And whenever I would see him and ask him how he was doing, he would quote off a number of years, months, and weeks, and even days until he retired. He so hated his job, but he was handcuffed, and he couldn't leave. And I thought, what a sad way to live. In a twisted way, I was glad and a little bit proud that I wasn't in that situation because I loved my, quote, job. If you're doing what God has wired you to do, you can have a God confidence in your work. And then when these distractions, and even in Nehemiah's case, sedition come your way, lies come your way, you can go back to that core principle. Look, I know what I'm doing. I'm doing an important work. I'm not going to be distracted. Dr. Howard Hendricks tells the person of a story who comes to him lamenting, Prof, there's not one Christian in my workplace. I'm the only believer there. Hendricks replies, are you kidding me? Not one? The person says, that's right, Prof. I'm the only one. To which Prof says, are you telling me God left it all up to you to tell these people about Christ? (laughs) Our perspective is important to see where God has us, but do you know your clear mission objectives? You may not have a life's plan or a mission statement or a vision statement, but we all know one that Christ gave each of us, and that was to make disciples of all nations, that you and I are to be in the business of sharing Christ and helping people grow in their faith to become a follower, a student, a disciple of Jesus Christ. It may not sound like a really great uh, leading visionary statement, but the visionary of all time told us, make disciples of all nations. He told us to share Christ. He told us to identify them as his followers. 
the entire corpus of the New Testament is to help people grow in their faith, to mature in their faith, to become more like Christ. That's your mission objective, even if everything else is confusing. A second lesson at this point, is there ever a time to run? I mean, technically, would there be a time for Nehemiah to run away? Verse 11, he poses the question, should a man like me flee? Now, I won't pretend that that's an easy decision, and I won't pretend that there's never a time to run. I won't pretend there's not bullies out there who are big and ugly. I won't pretend that there's not litigation and horribly expensive processes to stand your ground and to defend yourself. Slander, demoralizing statements, rumor, gossip, lying, all weigh in on a leader. But let me ask one question that was asked of me. When is it too early to run? Sometimes it just takes a little more time, a little more effort, a little more shoulders to the wheel. Maybe three months, six months, maybe nine months, maybe a year. And things might turn. I can't tell you there's never a time to run, but I can tell you, you might wait just to see what God would do. My suggestion is it's a rare time for a leader to run. Well, chapter 6, verse 15. So the wall was completed on the 25th of the month of Elul in 52 days. Boom. This verse appears almost in the exact middle of the text of the book of Nehemiah. Halfway through the book, the wall is completed. When all our enemies heard it, all the nations surrounding us saw it, they lost their confidence, for they recognized that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Also in those days, many letters went from the nobles of Judah to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah. In this brief section, after the wall is completed, the enemies are now dissipating. They've lost their confidence. They've lost their bravado. They've lost the battle in some respects. Tobiah the Ammonite is mentioned here with a little intrigue in his relationship to Judah. Evidently, there was some alignment with some in Judah who were supportive of Tobiah. In other words, they were loyalists. And maybe they had even been on Tobiah's side, in a sense, opposing Nehemiah. Now, all of a sudden, that the wall's built, they're sort of hung out to dry. So while Tobiah tries to intimidate through these letters and through this alliance with these people from Judah, the wall's construction, of course, ends that relationship. And the detail of history tells us that these letters of threat didn't accomplish anything because the wall has now been complete. Again, let me go back to Derek Kidner. All of this, in addition to the outside pressure already described, brought Nehemiah under attack from almost every quarter. It had been a test worthy of the man, and it was not yet over. So far in our leadership process and lessons, we're learning that this man is persistent. He won't be distracted by noise from outside. He knows he's on mission. He knows he's on task. And what a day. The wall was completed on the 25th of the month of Elul. In 52 days, the wall was complete. Often read about these Old Testament building projects, or if you visit Israel or Greece or any Roman uh, edifice built by Herod the Great, I wonder if we could build these things today. Methinks we couldn't. 
and I think of the wall's construction and completion in 52 days to have been an incredible architectural accomplishment, incredible teamwork, incredible ownership, a leadership project in some respects unparalleled in the Bible in 52 days to restore the wall around Jerusalem. The rebuilding of the wall in some respects was easy. The rebuilding of the people is going to be another story. Well, Dad, you mentioned this a few times during your teaching on chapter six, but I've heard you say this phrase countless times over the years, and that is this idea of keeping the main thing the main thing. Talk to me about that. What does that practically look like? Squirrel. <laughs> Squirrel. Everything comes in. There are always things that are urgent versus important. There are all kinds of distractions. And so when you get up in the morning, when I get up in the morning, when our friends get up in the morning, what is our primary objective today? For Nehemiah, it was very specific. We've got to rebuild this wall. Lots of distractions, lots of little foxes nibbled away at the objective. And a good leader is clearly focused. For me, as a pastor, it was always about making disciples and teaching scripture. Because when I looked at Christ's mandates, lots of things Jesus does. But his clearest commands were the so-called Great Commission, making disciples of all ethnos. And the way I play that out is, are we teaching people what God's word says, what it means, how we apply it, and then helping them grow in their faith? So really interesting. You had a conversation with Dennis Rainey about this very thing. And he also talked about while we may have a mission or vision for our business or what we're trying to accomplish in a leadership role, we all have an ultimate spiritual God's kingdom mission and the importance of knowing that, understanding that and living that out in our daily lives. So let's listen into that conversation. But before we do that, Tell us about Dennis Rainey. (laughs) Dennis has been a friend for 30 plus years. He is the president of Family Life, which is a very large organization under the crew umbrella. So they started out as marriage and family conferences. They expanded into parenting conferences. They expanded into what was called Home Builders, a curriculum for small groups. They've done radio and television. And he and Bob Lapine have been on Family Life Today now for many years and done an outstanding job in the radio broadcast world. Not to mention he's the author of I'm going to say north of 50 books now, and he and Barbara have been great family friends for many years. Well, let's listen to your conversation with Dennis about keeping the main thing the main thing. Well, I like to practice or attempt to practice Acts 13.36, which is a one-verse summary of a great leader, King David. It says... And after David had served the purposes of God in his generation, he slept. And I think if you're if you're going to be um, a faithful leader, I'm not talking about a great leader, just be a faithful leader, you've got to figure out what is God up to in your generation and how can can you be used in serving that purpose in your generation. And uh, for me... I wish I'd had that question 41 years ago when we started Family Life, uh, and I could I could somehow take credit, but I can't because I kind of stumbled into this whole thing about marriage and family, not even realizing that family would become ground zero for the cultural battle. But I think, unquestionably, what God is up to in every generation is marriages, families, and relationships. 
And uh, I think uh, the key to a guy sticking with it is he, he knows he's about a purpose that is transcendent, something that gets him out of bed in the morning and your feet hit the floor with boots on. And you're looking for your weapon and you're going to battle. And as Barbara and I talked about at an event you attended, uh, when we walk out the front door, we're leaving we're leaving the, the embassy, the Christian embassy that we live in, and we're ambassadors to a world that needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that means you got to know what the main thing is, which is the gospel and the Great Commission and loving God. And then you gotta you got to find your niche. Where's the place to make a difference? And how can you do that? And uh, just like someone I interviewed on our broadcast, Family Life Today, yesterday, uh, dear woman, um, Hannah Anderson, who lives in rural Virginia, uh, in the Blue Ridge Mountains, and they're just tucked into a little church, being faithful to do what they're supposed to do, raising three kids and about the king's work. And I don't think there's any more noble, any more productive, any more higher calling than to know you are serving the king of kings and lord of lords in whatever you do. Uh, There are no second-rate jobs in God's army. Talk to the Christian business person with the same question in mind. How do they keep the main thing the main thing? Uh, whether it's, you know, like a Norm Miller with Interstate Battery or a widget or a service provision company, what would you tell them? Well, I'd take a step back and just look uh, and take an inventory. What's God given you? You could be a king and not even realize it. You could have uh, three or four people who work for you or with you, or you could have three or four thousand. If so, who's he allotted to your influence and uh, I think some of the most powerful priests in our culture today, Michael, are business men, business women, who have assumed their rightful spot as uh, a believer priest and are looking and tending to the needs of their, their flock. And it's not like they're a pastor. They don't have the same responsibility as a pastor, but they do have a responsibility to care for the souls of the people who work for me to look out for their marriages, look out for their families, look out for their physical well-being. Some, I think some people need to take an inventory also, look back, and try to find the spiritual footprints in the past of where you felt God's favor when you used your gifts, used your abilities, used your passion. Where were those moments when, when you pounded the table and said, something's got to be done about this? And then you roll up your sleeves and did it and look back with satisfaction at it. And maybe you need to double down on some of these issues. Uh, I think we have men and women in leadership in small businesses, uh, medium-sized, major corporations, the boardrooms of America, of men and women who are put there by Almighty God but have not assumed their assignment. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says, We are His work of art. His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And God's got a purpose, a noble purpose, a a divine purpose, a part of the kingdom battle for every person to assume. The question is, what's yours? (laughs) 
Well, what a thought-provoking question to land on. And I just really appreciate Dennis asking the question. It challenges me to think about what is God's greater kingdom mission for my life? How does he want to be using me? Dad, you also spoke with Bob McEwen about the same topic, keeping the main thing the main thing. But Bob gave some really practical advice on how you do this with your family, with your job, and just in general day-to-day activities. But first, tell us about Bob McEwen. Six-term United States House of Representative from the great state of Ohio. Go you Buckeye fans. He's a good friend. He's currently the senior advisor of the law firm Greenbaum, Dahl, and McDonald. But Bob is the go-to guy for me to get constitutional, legal, political answers on the lower shelf. He communicates great to the masses. So it was a great conversation we had about this very issue. Well, everything in life is either important or urgent. And the capacity to decide the things that are coming at you, are is it important or urgent? We have to get gas. We have to fix dinner. We have to mow the lawn. We have to do these things that are constantly, and you can be chasing urgent things all the time. So the question is, how do you define what is important? And I came up with the definition of important is, are things that only I can do. There are six and a half billion people on earth. Only four call me daddy. I'm the only person on the planet that can be the husband of my wife. I'm the only person that will stand before God responsible for the spiritual health of my family. I'm called to be the protector and the provider, the person accountable for the financial health of my home. So therefore, the important things are things that only I can do. Anybody else can do those other things. And the question as to how I allocate my time, my interests, my talents, I have to constantly keep before me to make sure that the urgent does not drive out the important, number one. Number two is that when faced with questions as to how I allocate time, uh, Liz and I were constantly thinking about if you got something, an invitation, and, and we would ask ourselves in the back of our head, which will we remember six months from now? Because you, you can't make a blanket statement. You get invited to the White House, uh, and there's a soccer game going on. Well, uh, is it just a regular trip to the White House, or is this a special dinner, or is it a soccer game? Is this just one of a myriad of soccer games, or is this the championship in which uh, he's going to look over and remember that that was the time that his father wasn't there when they had this key opportunity? So you can't have a, just a blanket decision. And so we would ask ourselves, six months from now, which one are we going to remember? And if this is a play or this is a performance that they're going to remember the rest of their lives, then their parents need to be there versus whatever is the the urgent thing that's coming at us at that time. So that's sort of the way that that we tried to do it. And and another thing is that I tend to, to be critical of what I've done. And so we made it a point that every 90 days we would sit down and look back over our shoulders to the previous 90 days and say, did we do everything possible? to perform the tasks that God had put before us uh, to the best of our ability. Because I didn't want to, 20 years later, say, I wish I'd done this when they were 7 years old. I wish I'd done this when they were 12. And by doing that, I now feel perfectly confident that during that time, I did the best that I could do and using those two guidelines. 
Well, I love what Bob had to say, and it's so funny because I can distinctly remember sitting on his kitchen counter as a middle schooler talking to his wife, Liz, who he mentioned, and Mama Liz, as many of us called her affectionately, was helping me think through some decision that I had to make as a middle schooler, but I can remember her giving me that advice of, which are you going to remember six months from now? What's the greater memory? And that truly has stuck with me now for over 20 years, which is just crazy. But dad, you have also talked about this idea of facing opposition over and over and over throughout the teaching of Nehemiah. We see Nehemiah face opposition internally, externally. Seems like every chapter there's some new element of opposition for him. But you pose the question in this episode, is there ever a time for a leader to run? And you had a great conversation with Dennis Rainey about that. <laughs> I like this question. <laughs> I like this question. I've got an answer for you. If you're about God's will, never. I once sat down with Bill Bright. I'll never forget this. It was a sparsely appointed apartment on the campus at Colorado State University in Fort Collins, Colorado. And I was a a young man. We just started our family. We had all six of our kids in probably, I don't know, 600 square feet with one bathroom. So it was like a ghetto of, of uh, Christian workers in there. We were there just for the summer. But I got a chance to meet with Bill, and I told him that I'd been discouraged. And I really, truthfully, I, thought, I said, you know, I said, I thought about quitting, Bill. And I said, have, have you ever have you ever thought about quitting? And, Michael, I will never forget this until I die. I mean, seriously. Bill Bright looked back at me instantly with steely black eyes and said, never. <laughs> so I kind of poked at him a bit. I laughed and I said, oh, come on, Bill. When those guys came into your office back in the early 60s when you first started crew and you had eight of your nine leadership guys walk into your office and demand your resignation. <laughs> I said, you had to entertain the thought of, yeah, oh, this may not be for me. He looked back at me, and just as quickly as the first time, he said, never. And then I kind of got serious, and I go, really? You have never thought about quitting? And he said, Dennis, in, in all my years of serving Christ, I have never, ever entertained the thought of quitting. Case closed. And, Michael, I sat there going, <laughs> it wasn't as though God spoke to me audibly. He didn't, but it was like... Uh, as I left that meeting, I go, if you ever wonder why God gave a movement like Campus Crusade for Christ, now named Crew, if you ever wonder why he gave it to Bill Bright, maybe that's part of the reason. He's faced all kinds of opposition. People have come after him. He's all about the Great Commission. So is there ever time to quit? Yeah. Yeah, there's time to quit. I don't quit easy. I think there is a time to listen. There's a time to pray. There's a time to patiently listen more. The bigger the decision, the more you have to listen. But in the end, leaders need to lead. They need to step out and not slide into a decision. They need to decide and get with the program and courageously go for it. I'll never forget a statement made by Coach Mack one time at a speaker's meeting for Promise Keepers. He said, Almighty God can bless a decision. He can't bless indecision. <laughs> mm. And I think a lot of things get... Uh, sacrificed on the altar of passivity, 
indecision, opposition. But what we need today is never before are gritty leaders, men and women who aren't afraid to fail. They're willing to go for it and uh, risk it. I mean, what are we working for here? This is uh, Almighty God's agenda. I think we need to be men and women of faith stepping out and resisting opposition. One of the last points we want to observe in this section is Nehemiah's sense of God's hand. We noted that recurred a few times in the text, and so it intrigues me, how do we sense God's hand? One of the challenges of sensing God's hand, we we don't get revelation like the prophets of old did. And what I love about Nehemiah, there is some practicality to it. He prayed, he planned, he talked to people, people were moving with him, the king of Persia gives him permission. So not to say experientially, things always have to work out. But boy, it's reassuring when they do. And so we're going to hear from two of our friends about how they sense God's hand as they plan in their own ministries and their own lives and families. Michael, you probably know it in Exodus, it may be 33 or 34, where Moses is leading the nation of Israel and and he says, God, if you don't go with us, then I don't want to go up from here. And so you got to know you're going where God wants you to go. And if you don't go with us, God, then stop us. Don't let me go another step further. As you know, Michael, it's possible for a leader to make a bad judgment, make a poor decision, and not follow God in the direction he wants uh, us to go. But I I think God is at work, and I think Philippians chapter 2 points this out. God is at work within us both, both to will and to work his good pleasure. The idea of willing is to create the desire and... When he says to work, it's to create the opportunity. And I think our assignment is to be teachable to what God's Spirit is doing in us, what his what passions he has given us, where we sense his favor, see his hand upon us, and then look for the opportunities. They may not be big. They may be very small. Then begin to write them down and don't forget them. Because when you forget what God's done, this is a principle. You know this well, Michael. There's a principle in Psalm 78, Psalm 103, Psalm 106. That's the spiritual milestone principle. And it goes like this. When you forget what God's done, you will forget God and you'll fail to trust him in the challenges you're facing today. And I love what Tozier says. Tozier says, the most important thing about you is what you think about God. We need things that remind us about who God is, the truth about God. Of course, that's the Scripture. But I'll tell you what, there's also those those experiences where he showed up, where it's it's undeniable. God provided. Maybe it wasn't a parting of the Red Sea, but you knew that Almighty God in his presence had showed up there. And it's the wise leader who can go back to those spots, revisit it in moments of doubt and unbelief, and find fresh fuel for faith today. Well, if you didn't recognize that voice, that was Dennis Rainey again. And the next friend that you thought would be a great person to have a conversation with about sensing God's hand is Johnny Erickson Tata. 
Johnny has been on our show before a couple years ago, and we actually just filmed an amazing interview with her, which we are excited to be releasing in 2018. But if our listener has never heard about Johnny, what would you tell them about her? Where have they been the past 50 years? <laughs> Johnny Erickson Tata at age 17 uh, 1967, had a diving accident that resulted in her being a quadriplegic. So she lives in a wheelchair. This is her 50th year in 2017 of being in a wheelchair. A remarkable individual that God has used in uh, really indescribable ways. She's served on the National Council on Disability. She served on all sorts of ADA boards. She speaks all around the world. She keeps a schedule that people who are completely healthy would have a hard time keeping up with. Lives with chronic pain. She's dealt with cancer the past few years. Um, it's a long, long, hard road for any quadriplegic, paraplegic, anyone who's been disabled for that many years. So uh, as you listen to our friend Johnny, uh, pray for her as well. But let's hear how Johnny talks about sensing God's hand. I think that Nehemiah, obviously, because he was a man of great prayer, the, the Holy Spirit was very happy to speak into his heart. So the Lord opened the eyes of Nehemiah's heart, just as Paul enjoins us to pray in Ephesians. Uh, Open the eyes of my heart, Lord, that I might see things that you see, that I might see where you are working. And when I read the book of Nehemiah, what I see is that here's a man who's eyes are wide open to the needs around him. And I think great leaders can open their eyes and see needs and not wait for the next person to fill them, but take action to do something about them. Frankly, uh, I like to have my eyes so wide open that I see where God is not working. And I want to go there and make the kingdom strong. I think that leaders who are Visionaries are, in a way, frontiersmen. We are pioneers. We love blazing the trail where no one else has gone, because I think that's where God would want us to be, to shine the light in the darkest places. So go where the needs are. Go where the needs are greatest. Go where the world is bleeding out of control. That's, that's where God wants you to work. I love Dennis and so appreciate Johnny's comments. But for you and me, let's just talk about average, ordinary, uh, everyday believers trying to sense God's hand, whether I'm a, a homemaker, I'm a mom who works outside the home, a single parent, whether I've got one kid, four kids, whether I'm uh, nearing retirement. How do you sense God's hand? Let's go back to the three basics, God's word, God's spirit, and God's people. I don't think you can go wrong with that formula. Are you in the Word? Are you spending time daily with your nose in the book? Secondly, are you asking, are you prayerfully asking God's Holy Spirit to control your thoughts, to control your focus? You know, when I'm reading Scripture, I often say, Jesus, help me. I'm having a hard time staying with my nose in the text. My mind's drifting. I'm seeing squirrels. So I need God's help and his Holy Spirit's control to keep me focused in devotion. And then third, God's people. I need people around me whom I can trust, whom I can lean on, who I can ask for counsel, who aren't simply yes men and women, but will push back. So a foundation of God's word, God's spirit, and God's people whom we can trust 
is a very good way to sense God's hand in your life as a parent, as an individual, as a businessman or woman, as a person considering going into so-called full-time ministry or maybe transitioning out of that. Here's the deal. God is not simply a God of words on paper or text on a screen. He's a living, active God in your life and mine. His spirit indwells the believer, and he is transforming you and me into something we are not. This is Michael Easley in Context. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded from donations by our listeners. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation on our website? You can find us on michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters.